You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. Church, well, this morning I want to welcome our special guest speaker, Pastor John Perminsky. He is from Restore Church in Ionia, Michigan. Him and his wife, Lisa, started the church with 15 people 26 years ago, and now they are still pastoring that church, a thriving community of Christ followers. Pastor John has been a part of the Radiant Network since its inception. I've known him probably for over 10 years. He is a great man of God. He is a friend of mine and someone I look up to. And I know if I call John up in the middle of the night, he's the kind of guy who would pick up for me. And so listen, would you help to welcome and honor Pastor John Perminsky? Amen, amen, amen. It's an honor to be here. I hope, church, that you realize what solid leaders you have, um, and I would stake um, every bit of my reputation on telling you that they are the real deal, that they're genuine, um, that there's nothing hype or fake or false about them. They are just pure hearts for God, and you are blessed to have Pastor Marco and Carrie here over your church. And so I pray that you would pray for them so that they can continue to do all the terrifying things that God has put on their heart to do. And, uh, and if you've ever led before, you know that it's terrifying. And uh, I consider it a privilege and an honor to be with you. And so just to diffuse you, I, I'm just a Polak from the west side of Grand Rapids. Um, that's all I am. So uh, um, just uh, for all my Polish people here out in Bay City, um, be good for the, for the festival. That's all I'm saying. We, uh, I grew up around Pulaski days in, in Grand Rapids, and back in the day, they would even give you, in the, in the Grand Rapids press, in the, in, the, in the newspaper, they would tell you in what order to hit all the bars. You know, not only did they encourage bar hopping, but they'd tell you what order to hit the bars. So I always thought that was hilarious, but my dad preferred we stayed home because of all the drunk people that were driving around. So um, God has put a word on my heart for the church here. And I really want to both speak to, you know, Radiant Bay City, the city, and I kind of want to go after the culture a little bit today, not in a, in a negative way, maybe more of the church's role in the midst of our culture. I think it's so easy to get caught up in all the things that are going on today. Um, and, you know, everything seems to be up for definition today. Everything's getting redefined today. But I think that God wants to rebuild and restore his church. And so I was reading in the book of Nehemiah earlier this month, and I just caught some things I'd never seen before. Now, any pastor that's been in the ministry for any length of time is probably taught from the book of Nehemiah. And if Jesus can be seen in every book of the Bible, in Genesis, he's a breath of life, Exodus, a Passover lamb, Leviticus, the high priest, Numbers, fire by night, Deuteronomy, Moses' voice, Joshua, salvation's choice, and on and on and on. Well, in the book of Nehemiah, Jesus is seen as the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. And so there are truths in this book that I really want to highlight, I want to bring out. I hope you came hungry for the Word of God this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1? Can we stand in honor of God's Word at our church? I was raised in a church pastor would have a stand in honor of God's Word. 
You'll find that custom-based in the book of Ezra. They'd stand in honor of God's word. I'm reading out of the New Living. I like it because it's just a nice, clear, concise version. And uh, at first glance, you can grasp uh, an awful lot. And I, I understand it. further study, you can always get more. But it's a nice version, and I've just kind of fallen in love with it over the years. Begin with me in verse 3 of Nehemiah 1. It says, they said to me, things are not going well for those who've returned to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, says Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we've sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I'll bring you back to the place that I've chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Father in heaven, I pray your word would explode with life today. Scripture itself says that the word of God is living and active, and it's powerful. It's powerful. And it can separate our mind, our will, and our emotions from our spirit. It can cut to the very marrow of our bone. This is what Scripture says the Word of God can do. And so, Father, I pray that your Word would cut us only in the best of ways this morning. Have your way with each and every heart in this life, God, as only you can. In Jesus' name, we pray. And if you're in agreement, say amen. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, I was reading in the book of Nehemiah earlier this month. Now, I read through the Bible every year, sometimes twice, if I'm keeping a good pace. And Pastor John, what's your Bible reading plan? Oh, it's real simple. It's got bookmarkers, and so I use them. And, and so I just get up in the morning with a cup of coffee, and I pick up where I left off. Um, this Bible has three markers and so, typically, um, that's for Old Testament, Psalms, and New Testament. So I began reading in Genesis, Psalms, and Matthew, and, and I'm almost done um, this year. Uh, I began in October of last year, and I was reading in the book of Nehemiah, and I, I saw things differently in this book than I've ever seen before, yeah, 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 it's a great book on leadership, maybe one of the best in all of Scripture. But it's also a book on spiritual leadership. And the principles that are found in here, they're also equally applicable spiritually, and it's kind of where I want to, want to come to you from, because I saw the broken down walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day as the same as the broken down walls of the church in our day because the church's walls are broken down. 
how, I, how and why I made that connection is going to be our study today. Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 is very, very telling. It's very telling. Notice how he concludes why Jerusalem's walls are broken down. So think about everything that would have gone into a city, especially back in that day, to their walls being broken down. Attacks of the enemy, continued onslaughts, all of the things that would have contributed to broken down walls. Notice what Nehemiah says was the root cause of that in verse 7, and it's the connection that I'm going to make with the church today. Look at verse 7 again. He says, we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Notice how Nehemiah says we've sinned terribly, in essence, by not keeping God's word. And I just want to say this, that if you think for five seconds that the church is not going to be held accountable to God because of how we've honored his word, you got another thing coming. I got swamp land in Georgia that I'll sell you too. We will be held accountable for how we've handled his word. Whether we had the courage like your pastor to get up and to preach his word or whether we cave and we give in to all the demands of the culture and the culture will always have demands. We'll always have demands, but our responsibility before God is to preach his word, not ours, not ours, his word. Because Paul put it best, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. New Living says, for it is how God makes us right with him. It's how God changes our life. And so I just want to speak to you about what Nehemiah had to deal with in his day. And I believe the church is going to grab some truths from it today as well. Because the pressure to conform is enormous and many churches are caving and are intimidated by, by culture. And it is scary out there. It's going to cost something to, to be a Christian today, to remain a Christian today. It's going to cost you something. And I don't think we are far from seeing just out-and-out out persecution. It's amping, it's amping up. It won't be long before what's being spoken of from pulpits that have been spoken of for decades is going to be called hate speech. And so brace yourself, um, because God never promised us a rose garden, but he did promise us salvation. He did promise that he would never leave us or forsake us. He did promise that he would be there with us through thick and thin. And there must be something about our generation that says we're up for the task, that, that we can handle this, that we can, we can do this. I think it's significant how the voice of our culture today is all about expression. I don't have a problem with expression. Um, I posted earlier, I, I don't know, it was a few weeks ago, where I said that I believe even the 4th of July celebration this year is all going to be about personal expression and not our country's independence. What amazes me is that in a day and an age when expression is being paraded, the voice of the church is being forced into suppression. So the, the culture wants to express all of their newfound freedoms and liberties, but the church is being suppressed because of the, tr the traditions and the word of God that we've held to for all these years. And in Nehemiah, we see the enemy's intimidation and strategy, and I want to say that as we look at these 
that they faced in the physical, I want you to also see it with spiritual eyes because I believe that you'll be able to glean even more from it. The first you'll find in Nehemiah 2.10. It says, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Anyone that takes up the cause of Christ in the church today seems like enemy opposition is very displeased with that. And so one of the very first tactics of the enemy is displeasure. What are you doing? I don't agree. I'm not pleased with your choices and I'm not pleased with your stance. Well, I didn't think that I was doing anything for your good pleasure anyway. I thought I was doing it for the Lord. And if somehow, if my honoring God offends you, then I take it up with the Lord. I'm just trying to be obedient before God. I mean, why do I got to keep you happy anyway? And why don't I have the freedom to make decisions just like you have the freedom to make decisions? Why are you gaining freedom and I'm losing mine? Why? Aren't we all Americans? Begins with displeasure. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. Sam Ballot was very angry when he learned that they were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and he mocked the Jews. It'll go from displeasure to mocking, to ridiculing. Bible says in Psalm 1 that we're not to sit in the seat of mockers. Christians don't drink the Kool-Aid. Man, that ain't how we fight. And not to say we, we're not going to have to take a stand, but we fight best on our faces and on our knees. Don't answer back like that. Don't enter in. Man, let them say what they say. The most dignified, respectable people that I've ever been around they don't defend themselves, and they don't, they don't go after people because they're going after them. So could I encourage you to be very careful about the words that you use? If somebody mocks you, let them mock. Let them mock and let it go. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdodites, heard that the work was going on ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. It goes from displeasure to mocking, and then it escalates to threats. To threats. You better stop what you're doing. Or we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. I don't think we're a far cry away from pastors getting thrown in jail just because they're preaching the Bible that's been preached, same Bible that's been preached for hundreds of years. I think you're going to see ministers getting tossed in jail. It's not easy to to be in the ministry, and so the, the, the church world that I grew up in is going to be a far cry from what the Marcuses and the Marthas face in their day and their age, what my sons, I have two in full-time ministry, what they face in their day and their age. So let's say displeasure doesn't work, mocking doesn't work, threats don't work. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, when Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not set up the doors and the gates, Sam Bell and Geshem sent a message asking me to come meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Oh No. I can't think of a better name for a plain than Oh No. Um, just a clue 
if the plane that they're calling you to meet them in is called, oh no, don't go. <laughs> but I realized that they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them, I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Why should you quit doing what you believe God's asked you to do to come and meet with people? Um, man, why don't you join me in this work? Why are you trying to pull me away from work? Should be your first clue. Four times they sent the same message, and after each time I gave the same reply, the fifth time Sam Ballant's servant came with an open letter in his, in his hand. So if displeasure doesn't work, that being expressed, mocking doesn't work, escalating to threats, that doesn't work, then distraction and deception are typically what comes next. Well, then I'm going to try to pull you away. I'm going to try to distract you. I'm going to try to, in the prison system, we have four prisons in Ione. You used to have five. You have four prisons. They would say, I'm trying to knock you off your square. I'm trying to move you off your stance. I'm trying to intimidate you. I'm trying to push you. I'm trying to get you to back down. And if I can't threaten you into doing that, then I'm going to somehow deceive you and distract you into doing that. And let me show you the last one, which maybe you've never heard before. But picking it up in chapter 6, verse 11, but I replied, should someone in my position run from, run from danger? Leaders, you can't run. You can't run. I just, I love the movie The Patriot. And I love that scene where Mel Gibson picks up, what, who's he, William Wallace in the movie? Uh, or not? That was Braveheart. Who was, we in, who was he in the, thank you, Mark. Who was, who was he in the, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, but in the Patriot, he, he, the, the flag had fallen down. The person that was holding the flag had, I think, gotten killed. He grabbed it because the soldiers were starting to retreat, and he grabbed it and ran in the direction they should have been heading. Leaders can't, you can't run. You can't run. We can't run. Please don't run. No matter how terrifying things get, please don't run. And I love what Nehemiah says, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't. Even in the book of Job, what did, what did Satan the accuser say? Skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his own skin. I think we need to lay our skin down so that lives can be saved in these last days. Amen. I mean, everybody talks smack until somebody's bold enough to say, I, what I believe, I'll die for. Did you know that that's how Christian, Christianity was validated in the early days? Because unlearned men were willing to give their lives for what they professed to believe and for what they said they experienced firsthand. I mean, they were either lunatics or what they believed in was so genuine and life-changing, they were willing to give their lives for it. I pray that the church is able to rise up in these last days if our lives are ever required of us as well. It's easy to preach about. It's harder to do. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. It's powerful that giving in to intimidation is called sin here. 
Remember, oh my God, all the evil things that Tobiah and Sanballat have done, and remember Noadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her who've tried to intimidate me. So if displeasure doesn't work and mocking doesn't work, escalating to threats, that doesn't work, distraction and deception doesn't work, then the last tactic of the enemy that he'll use is false prophecy. Why? Because false prophecy discourages. Genuine prophecy encourages. Genuine prophecy encourages. False prophecy discourages. And I'm hoping to encourage some people today as well. I'm going to come back to that verse. So what should the church's response be? In the book of Nehemiah, maybe one of the least favored chapters is going to be chapter 3. You're going to read it and you're going to think, what would be the sense in this? I've learned from reading the Bible for years, don't be so quick to dismiss those those names and those, those genealogies. And every time names stand out or there's some kind of, of highlight to that name, for instance, in biblical times, the Bible was a mostly male-dominated culture. When you see women's names mentioned, take note of those women. They are rock stars. Take note of, of those women. They were mighty women indeed, and I believe God is using women today like he never has before. Ladies, step up and assume your posts and your roles. Dear Lord, if all the men of God were doing what they were supposed to do, then hey, maybe we wouldn't need the ladies to step up, but how many of you know that's not true? And so ladies, please, please, women were the first to the tomb, they're the first to church, they're the first everywhere. God bless them. In fact, that's, that's how they know that the biblical accounts are accurate because it's said that women were the first to the tomb. In that day and in that culture, they wouldn't have even mentioned women. And so because they did, this is authentic. This is real. Ladies, you are more powerful than you know. I believe some of the most encouraging content, though, is in chapter 3, and I just want to highlight just a few mentions here for you. I'm going to do my best not to hack these names up. I remember I, uh, I got to announce a soccer game in, in Ionia, and there was a team from Lansing, and they had kids on that soccer team from like all over the world. And this one kid came up to me and he goes, you're, you're, you're not going to get my name. He goes, just call me Ali. I go, you want me to call you? He goes, you aren't going to get my name. He goes, you'll never be able to pronounce my name. I go, all right, man, you are Ali. I'm not even going to try to tackle your name. So hopefully I will not abuse these names here. Um, they're recorded in Scripture, and I'm going to honor them as best as I can. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priest started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it, set up its doors, building the wall as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated the tower of Hananel. So notice how spiritual leadership led the way in the rebuild. And you can claim to be spiritual all day long if you are you're going to be about rebuilding and restoring. You won't be about tearing down. You won't be about mocking. As soon as I see someone claiming to be a Christian and they're mocking and they're ridiculing and they're tearing down and they're belittling, I don't think very highly of their faith and 
the belief that they hold to. Because in these last days, the last thing we need to be doing is ripping on each other and tearing people down. And spiritual leadership should lead the way. The Bible says you who are spiritual, restore the fallen brother. It doesn't say mock him, doesn't say tear him down, doesn't say belittle him. So notice how spiritual leadership led the way in the rebuild. Look at verse 2, maybe one of my more favorites in this chapter. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. Notice how people from Jericho were helped rebuilding. Well, how many of you know people from Jericho understood some things about walls being torn down and broken down? And here they are, because they know the value of walls. And we want to rebuild. We want to help. We want to be part of the rebuild. Look at Verses 9 through 12, these are awesome. Dads, if you've got daughters, you're going to dig this. Rephiah, son of Hur, the leader of half of the district of Jerusalem, was next to them on the wall. I'm in verse 9. Next, Jediah, son of Haramoth, repaired the wall across from his own house. Next to him was Hatush, son of Hashbaneah. Then came Melchizedek, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pahath, Moab, who repaired another section of the wall and the tower of the oven, Shalom, son of Halohesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. He was a leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. I love that this father said, come on, girls, we're going to help. Come on, you can do anything those boys are doing. Come on, you, you help. I so love it. He was a district leader. District leaders even pitched in, and they even grabbed their daughters. Come on, girls. Let's help. Look at verse 17. Next to him, repairs were made by a group of Levites working under the supervision of Rehum, son of Bani. Even the Levites are pitching in, and they helped. Who are the Levites? The Levites were the tribe that God gave to the priests to help them because the tasks were too great for the priests alone. And then I think verse 22 of chapter 3 is powerful. The next repairs were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Why is this so powerful? Because when local spiritual leadership starts, surrounding spiritual leadership will join in. I've seen so many pastors attempt to do things by putting their feelers out to the leaders in the community. Hey, we're thinking about doing this. Would you be a part of it? I think the biblical model is, hey, we're doing this. Do you want to be a part? We're going to do it whether you're a part of it or not. I would appreciate your prayers for July 5th because on July 5th, we're going to do something as a church we've never done before. Ionia boasts to be the location of the world's largest free fair. And this year, we're going to go down to the free fair, and we're going to do an open-air meeting. We're going to have live worship. We're going to partner with the churches that want to be a part of it, and I'm going to preach a message on how we will all stand before God and give an account, as Scripture says. And we're going to, it's going to be very evangelistic, but we're going to go for it. We're going to be praying our faces off, and then we're going to go there, and we're going to have an incredible worship night. And we're going to do it like from 8 o'clock at night till 10 o'clock. And uh, so please be praying. Um, because the fairgrounds are, I don't want to say it's hostile territory, but um, there's a lot that goes down in those fairgrounds that doesn't honor God. And I'm not saying that that is what the founders of the free fair are all about. I'm just saying that that's what people do. 
that come and hang out, especially at night. I'd tell my boys, you can go to the fair, but don't go at night unless there's a whole bunch of you. Just don't go at night. Um, crazy stuff goes down at night. So please be praying for us. But we just, we made up our minds, we're going to do this. And we invited churches that were of like precious faith. You want to be a part of that with us? You can. We're not forcing anybody to do anything. Um, but this is what we're doing kind of a thing. So the lie of the enemy, and it always has been, is that you're all alone in the fight. The lie of the enemy is that you're all alone in the fight. The lie of the enemy, and you know know what leverage he has on you? If you want to know what leverage the enemy has on you, it's your silence. Don't tell anybody what you did. Don't don't tell anybody what went down. Don't tell anybody because they're going to think so bad of you as if you've done something that's new under the sun. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. And so the enemy's greatest leverage against you is to keep your mouth shut. Don't confess anything. Yet James 5.16 says that if we'd confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that there'd be healing. I think there's a lack of healing because people won't confess. Somehow the shame, the guilt, the, you know, I just, I couldn't bear the thought of what you would think of me. What if God wants to bring healing on the other side of that confession? I want to encourage you. Um, Acts 18, I'm just going to, Read a scripture, and then I'm going to highlight a couple others that you can read. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, told him, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for, for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. There are always more people that are with you than you realize. Many in this city are mine. Let me just say this. Many in Bay City belong to the Lord. You're not alone. And if you'll stand and fight, then I guarantee others will join, join in. And I believe we're going to have to stand, take a stand for Jesus Christ in these last days. Elijah has this incredible victory in Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 19. And right after that, he's given a letter by Jezebel, and he's running for his life. And he says, I'm all alone. There's no one left. And the Lord says, that's not true. There are 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Whenever we think we're all alone in the fight, whenever we think that we've done something that no one else has ever done, we're always wrong. Because we're never alone. Isn't that the lie of anyone that's ever taken their life? That no one's going to care, no one's going to miss, no one's going to... Or that they're somehow rescuing everybody from them and they're being a martyr. Or, I mean, it's a lie. It's a lie. They are loved. That's why we miss them so much and why we might still be hurting over some. It's a lie. Don't buy the devil's lies. You're not alone. You are loved. God does have a purpose for you. It was true in Paul's day. It was true in Elisha's day. And it's true in our day. And we've got to take a stand no matter how furious the opposition I'll just close, and then I want to step out and encourage some of you with Nehemiah 6, 9. I was going to read it earlier, but I wanted to save it for the end here. Nehemiah 6, 9 reads, They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us to stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. That word determination in 
In the New Living, the original Hebrew, it says, but now to strengthen my hands. So this is all the opposition. This is all the intimidation. And now I choose to strengthen my hands. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose to be strong in this. Strengthen there means to be harsh in a state of high degree of intensity. To be hard, not willing to learn information, implying the information could change the response of the situation. To be strong, having the ability to accomplish what's intended, implying an element of resolve is needed as well. And I'll just say this, if false prophecy discourages, then genuine prophecy encourages. It encourages. It builds up. And I just want to be able to encourage some of you today. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3 says, Prophecy speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort, or it speaks strength and encouragement. And even that word comfort, it's gotten such a bad rap today in modern English because that's really not what the word meant. When we think of comfort, we think of there, there, it'll be all right. We're going to get through this together. And that might be true, but the word's stronger than that. It speaks of fortifying. It comes from a Latin root that means to fortify. It comes from fortis, a Latin root meaning to fortify, to build up, to, to encourage. So even that word comfort there, when it's speaking of prophecy, it's like to fortify you and to strengthen you, not to weaken you. And so I just want to step out with some words that I believe that God gave me for this second service. Um,